What is up, people? Welcome back to yet another episode of Kickoff Sessions. Thank you very much for joining me on another session. And this one is going to be slightly different, but going to be a great episode for sure. I'm joined with Dr. Natalie Solomon, and we're going to get into all of the details around how sleep impacts absolutely everything we do. Dr. Solomon has an amazing background. She's a licensed psychologist, board certified in behavioral sleep medicine, and a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Stanford University School of Medicine. Natalie Solomon conducts research as a member of computational psychiatry, neuroimaging, sleep lab, and treats patients in the sleep health and insomnia program. She specializes in the study and treatment of sleep disorders. Her clinical interests include the intersection of sleep difficulties with overall quality of life and women's health, looking at pregnancy, postpartum, menopause, among many other different areas. Dr. Solomon enjoys treating a variety of sleep difficulties, including insomnia, circadian rhythm, and nightmares. This session is so fascinating. I absolutely love this so much. We got into a lot of details on the factors that influence sleep, looking at things like light, alcohol, caffeine, drugs, many other different areas. We look at nightmares, PTSD, trauma, many other factors that, that feed into this and what we can do on a day-to-day -day basis to improve our sleep quality. That's what we want to get from here. You know, we want to learn how we can implement steps to actually go and make changes, which I'm super excited to get into the details from. I know you're going to really enjoy this episode and I won't keep you too much longer, but please, please, please share this session towards Instagram. Tag myself, darrenlee.ks as well as tagging Natalie Solomon. You can also rate us five stars on Spotify and go over and check out the full HD version on YouTube too. That would be really appreciative. So I'll leave it right here. Here's my conversation with Natalie Solomon on how sleep impacts absolutely everything we do. Let's do this. Natalie, thank you so much again. I really, really appreciate it. Between our 15 different time zones, I really do uh, appreciate this. It's kind of ironic as well how we're recording a podcast about sleep. And I've barely slept. It's like six o'clock in the morning. I, I also work. <laughs> I like you can even see it in my eyes. Like mm -hmm. as in, I work European hours. So my startup is based in uh, London. So a lot of the times I'll start late. This is horrific now to begin with. I'll start late. I'll finish quite late. As you can tell, I've like professional lighting and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've I can see the impact of that on my sleep. So we're gonna get into all these different areas today. Which should be really good and I'm, I'm very excited for it absolutely thanks for having me of course so i've been a big fan of your work especially since nora recommended to me i think a lot of the you know the in-depth analysis you've done around sleep has been amazing but i'd like to start around maybe some of the factors that influence sleep so mm -hmm. from your perspective you know it's multivariable there's a lot of things going on um but what are some some of the big kind of factors you need to be kind of aware of that influence your sleep overall yeah, when we first start talking to people about sleep, like in our clinic at Stanford, we normally start by reviewing um, two biological factors that impact sleep, and then a factor that most people can guess has an impact. So the two biological ones, you know, very briefly, one is the circadian clock, which many people have heard of, that's like your internal sense of time, relates very much to what you're saying about working in different time zones, you know, that your mind is in a different time zone to your body, if you will. Um, the second one is what we call the sleep drive. You might have heard this is like your appetite for sleep. It's um, kind of where you are. And, and this one relates to caffeine and pieces like that, your, your pressure for sleep. And then the third one that often people can guess is stress or activation 
can impact our sleep. It's hard to sleep when our mind is very busy. So the third piece is kind of like the busy mind. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that like it's kind of on a spectrum as well that people kind of move up and down? You know, they're going to be a bit more stressed or is it something that you can kind of adapt to? So circadian rhythm, for, for instance, for me, that's working quite late. Is it something that you can adjust to or is it something that could be continuously being worsened and actually getting a lot worse over time? The answer is multifaceted. So there are some things about our circadian rhythm that are pretty stable. Um, so for example, if someone identifies as more of like a night owl or a morning person mm-hmm. with some um, variation, it tends to be pretty stable across our lives. There's like a few small exceptions to that. So mm-hmm. there's there's a piece of stability and we're trained to the sun, right? So it's hard to live in one place and be keeping other hours, but people do it. If you are doing it, it's about consistency, you know, so you're really working uh, to consistently stick with certain schedules. I guess that also applies to shift work. Um, To the other piece you were saying about, you know, can, do these things get worse and worse or can we adjust? People have different levels of vulnerability to sleep disruption. So for some people, it's actually no problem. They have a really flexible sleep system. Um, They can move their hours around and they're still sleeping okay. And for other people, they just might be more vulnerable. And so they're more likely to see the impact on their sleep, maybe of high stress or something like that. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting point, because you see some people who say, oh, you know, they need a fixed level of seven to eight hours and they're kind of they don't perform at all. Uh, A lot of my good friends are kind of similar to that, whereas some other people can kind of get on with it at a lower level, uh, six, maybe seven. But again, of course, it has that impact, you know, so I suppose it's kind of setting those kind of rules and maybe like it's prioritizing, trying to fix your stress levels, trying to fix um, the amount of work you do, especially where it's being situated. Because mm-hmm. uh, I suppose, as you said, it's multifaceted. It's not like one one thing fits all in a scenario mm-hmm. and we can apply like a one principle, you know, what do you think about that in terms of like how people go up and down at going on that range because you obviously see like examples of Elon Musk who say oh I don't need as much as or I don't do as much sleep as other people that's kind of interesting isn't it yeah you bring up two interesting points one is you know actual number of hours slept and uh you know I feel like you'll hear me say a version of this a lot but of course it's like nuanced on the one hand the amount of sleep people need really does vary person to person. You know, there really are, as you were saying, there really are people whose performance is hindered if they don't get their, you know, whatever it is, eight to nine hours. And there are other people that really feel good on five or six. Um, and at the same time, we're not so great at um, detecting the impact that sleep dev- deprivation might be having on us. So like we might think we're doing fine on suboptimal sleep. Everything's okay. It's kind of like alcohol in that way. Like after <laughs> you've started drinking, you might think you're fine, but in reality, your performance is hindered. Sleep can be a little bit like that. We're not, we're not so great at picking up on the areas in which we might be compromised. Mm, that's a very interesting, like a uh, human behavior, isn't it? That, people do things and they don't think that there's much of an impact from it uh, and diet is a great example you're saying alcohol is that you can have you know and everything within reason of course but you know as you begin to have more poor food poor quality food that has an impact on your your physical health you know your insides your your breath work everything everything has an impact and sleep is a very good example it feels like we're taking it from that kind of sleep jar and we feel like that oh it's completely fine but it's like it is coming from a certain area and it's going to catch up on you eventually, isn't it? 
Yeah, for many people there are, you know, so there's a difference between like one night and like an ongoing, you know, like lifestyle. Um, There's also a difference between people who don't prioritize sleep, like they're kind of burning the candle at both ends, if you will. And people who are trying to prioritize sleep, but can't sleep as much as they would like. So there's kind of like the insomnia profile and like the very busy person profile. And of course, sometimes we find someone who fits in both. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but you're absolutely right. If we're really not meeting our sleep needs in an ongoing way, we do see the impact in many domains, um, including physical health, immune function, mental health, um, executive functioning. So that's things like memory and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So um, like illness susceptibility. So uh, we do see the impact, but it's, you know, of course, it's I don't want anyone to panic. Like, should I be getting more sleep? That's not necessarily true, you know? Exactly. But I think it's good to be aware of it. And that's why I like digging into this in, in, in very much detail, you know, and feel free to go more on leaving the science side of it as well about like how this actually impacts. Because um, I'd like to even ask her on that, like what is actually the prolonged effect of, of poor quality sleep? You add this and it compounds. How does this impact people over the long run? Yeah. So I think the first, like the first part of it is what is poor quality sleep, you know? So yeah. um, we tend to say, Quality sleep refers to um, how one is falling asleep and staying asleep. And there's kind of a myth that high quality sleep is like your head hits the pillow and you remember nothing. It's actually normal to wake up a little bit in the night. It's normal to some nights, you know, whatever, get up and go to the bathroom. So that's the sleep quality piece. For sleep quantity, it's how much you sleep. And there is no magic number. Um, We tend to assess quantity based on how one feels during the day. So if you feel good during the day and you feel well rested, it's possible your sleep need is getting met versus if you feel sleepy or groggy, not just in the morning, but throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Um, You asked about the impact. We see the impact in our physical health. Um, We see the impact in terms of memory and cognitive health. So things like, um, yeah, immune functioning, um, I mentioned before injury risk. No, I think I said uh, illness susceptibility. Another one is injury risk. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. In terms of our uh, cognitive functioning, sometimes people notice memory impact. Uh, this thing we call executive functioning, which is things like planning, um, lots of the things that we need for the work day. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, long-term health. You know, our body really needs our sleep as a way of um, resting for homeostasis to clean the brain. And so we really see the impact, you know, it's in all domains, uh, essentially. That's actually, that's really fascinating because I think, especially from a f- physical sense. So my kind of backgrounds in bodybuilding, um, always been a lot of, you know, high kind of intensity training. A lot of these guys will do six, seven days a week, including myself, you might do many cardio sessions. And usually when people are dieting, we can talk about dieting as well during this, during the session, but usually it's you're going to get injured in those particular areas when your body's under a lot of stress it's obviously natural put your, your the muscles time under tension but especially when you get poor quality sleep is that you're very open towards tears um muscle soreness even recovery is very poor so i've even acknowledged that how time over during the week you know of course your your monday tuesday wednesday you may be recovered from the weekend but wednesday thursday friday you feel a bit more exhausted and there's mm-hmm. that those moments is where you can kind of get a bad injury easily easily 
and it kind of compounds that. That's that, that's only in a physical sense. And then from a, a memory perspective, I see a lot of people, you know, when they're when they're working, you can even see them kind of fade off towards the end of the week. And it's like the basic kind of nuts and bolts of the day to day can kind of fall apart. And this happens in those aggressive spaces of even startups or the bodybuilding example when people are trying to go like to a professional stage, you know. Right. Right. I mean, sometimes, and so, you know, we're at Stanford, we're here in Silicon Valley. Um, Sometimes a big part of the conversation is, you know, there's really only 24 hours in the day. And uh, often sleep gets the short end of the stick, you know, so, you know, we're going for all these other things, but at what point then does sleep catch up to us? Uh, Is our compromised sleep actually harming us in those other areas? Mm. Um, Yeah, absolutely. How does sleep affect things like mood, like dopamine, testosterone, and like estrogen? Definitely. So most of us, myself included, can think about the impact of sleep on mood. Like if we just think about a day, if you've Mm -hmm. flown overnight and slept really poorly, there's also a connection between compromised sleep and like depression, for example. Um, And so there's a strong link between sleep and mood. Personally, I notice it with like irritability. (laughs) You know, I just have like a smaller bandwidth. Mm -hmm. Um, The second part of your question, testosterone and estrogen. Yeah, so um, sleep is related to hormone function in many domains. Um, Specifically, often sleep is linked to, um, it's more about contrast. So if we can sleep well at night, then our body can function well during the day, which for example, we have like melatonin at night and cortisol during the day. And if our sleep becomes compromised or choppy, we see a decrease in amplitude. So I don't know if I can speak specifically to an impact on testosterone, although I'm sure there probably is research out there. Um, But we do notice, like I'm guessing you're asking from the physical domain, we do notice that we see like, for example, compromises in speed, um, in technical skill, and some of the things we talked about before, like just illness and injury susceptibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a full spectrum. But I think especially from the, the, the mood aspect is huge. Um, I can see that even myself, you know, as time goes on the week, the later hours you do, you just see yourself much more susceptible to small little kind of niggles throughout the day and whatnot. And it's interesting because I call it like the Sunday effect. On mm-hmm. Sunday, you slept pretty well, unless you went out on Saturday. You slept pretty well. You know, you're taking it kind of easy. Your mood's pretty much more elevated, but it's when you get a bit more strange during the week, you see that kind of those kind of cracks in your play. Is there anything you would do to kind of approach the working week? Like what is the optimal way you would look at your sleep? Like how do you prepare for it? Yeah. So this isn't the case for everyone, but for many people, part of what happens is that they're able to keep different hours on the weekend. So let's say during the week, maybe they have to wake up at seven or something for work. And then on the weekend, they're able to sleep in. Um, And so when Sunday comes around, maybe you did sleep in Sunday morning, but you like have to fall asleep earlier in order to get your sleep for Monday. So there's like a shift that happens. It's it's kind of a version of jet lag, even though you might not be changing time zones. Mm -hmm. And so we often try to say if you're having if you're struggling with your sleep at all, or if you're looking to optimize your sleep, one way is to try to pull your weekend and weekday sleep schedule to be a little bit closer together. So it's a, it's a little bit counterintuitive, like, should I not sleep in on weekends? And um, the answer is not, not at all, but maybe pulling them a little bit closer together 
helps keep that sleep consistent. It's kind of an investment in your longer term sleep. Mm-hmm. I think the other um, like tip that applies to all of us that immediately comes to mind for me is this idea of like a buffer zone or a wind down zone before we go to bed. So we've had like a busy day and uh, if we, it's like we get, if we go right to bed, it's just not going to go that well. (laughs) So just having some time to um, kind of unwind from the day, especially for highly productive people. Sometimes they worry this time isn't very productive. It's like, I should be working or sleeping, but it's just not realistic. Um, Mm -hmm. And so really taking some time, whether it's, you know, 30 minutes or 60 minutes to kind of unwind from the day and transition to the night means that when you do go to sleep, the quality of your sleep will probably be higher. Yeah, that stuff, um, that stuff worries me so much. It's so interesting because as I, as I mentioned, like I work super late and it's always like, oh, just get to bed straight away, you know, just just get to bed straight away. And uh, it was just getting introduced to Andrew Huberman's work around light and sleep, which usually scares me because I'm very like diligent, let's say I'd, I'd follow things very clearly and um i would follow a lot of his work around light very very closely so in the morning you know i live in a tropical climate i would get up have good like exposure Mm. to sunlight do i always train within 60 minutes of being awake and i have it even throughout the day so i'd use you know light exposure throughout the day and it it fixes my kind of body and i always feel great during the day but then he scared me by saying that at night light exposure and i'll have my laptop i'll have my phone i'll have um professional lighting around me 24 7 mm. and then that's always playing on my mind going to sleep so i n- need to introduce those kind of breaks in between and i think you could speak for that as well around you know any sort of screen and technology and then just going straight into bed because people are pretty much you know you know they're they're very associated with their devices at this stage in their life you know Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to screens, um, there's kind of two main factors when we think about sleep. One is content and the other is blue light. Um, Maybe we'll start with the blue light because you mentioned it. So blue light is the spectrum of light emitted from technology, right? Like phones, computers, um, iPads, TVs. And blue light can delay or suppress melatonin. And so this is where we hear this recommendation, like, you know, try to protect yourself from screens before going to bed. Um, The impact of blue light is relative to how much light one gets during the day. So for you, it's very possible that you're getting enough bright light during the day to actually be protected from that impact of blue light in the evening. So that's kind of great. Um, Yeah. The other thing is that the some of the things we have to block blue light are quite productive. So things like if you've seen those yellow tinted glasses, blue light blocking glasses, or the iPhone has a setting called night shift. Um, There's some free things we can put on our computers, as well as TVs tend to be far enough away from us that the blue light drops off. It has a high drop off rate that it's unlikely to reach us and impact our sleep. So from a blue light perspective, we can be thoughtful about protecting ourselves from the impact maybe making sure to get outside for like 20 or 30 minutes during the day um, to mitigate the impact. Mm -hmm. Um, I should say people who identify as night owls are a little bit more vulnerable to blue light. So it might be more, they might want to be more thoughtful about protecting themselves from technology in the evening, which kind of leads me to the other piece, the content piece. Um, What we're doing matters, right? So working is very mentally stimulating or activating, and you're more likely to need that buffer in between. Watching TV for many people, 
you know, depending on what you're watching, I wouldn't watch like the news, <laughs> um, <laughs> might actually be an unwinding in and of itself. So if it's on an actual TV and you're pretty protected from the blue light, you know, there's some person to person variation. So sometimes I find the recommendation to stay off technology a little bit overly simplified. Um, I would rather recommend to be thoughtful about the impact of blue light and be thoughtful about the content. You know, what is entering your world right before you're trying to unwind and go to sleep? Yeah, that's that's um, it's pretty fascinating because if you think of it from like a biological perspective, like going back, you know, tens and thousands of years, there was never this element of all this light exposure at night. It's kind of like when the sun goes down, well, the day is over, yeah. <laughs> and you're prepping for going to bed. And I don't know, maybe if the sun goes down, it goes down in, in Singapore at seven p.m., you could go to bed two, three hours later. Um, and even at back to when you're using candlelight, you know, your body's kind of getting more into that pattern. It seems just bizarre from a biological perspective that we introduce this like light omitting device yeah. that is glued to our face that impacts us over the long run. Absolutely. There's a lot of research supporting what you're saying that um, without electricity, our sleep can look different. As well as there was a study, I think it's from 2018, um, where basically people came into the lab and they came in multiple times and in some randomized way. At one point, they had paper materials before they went to sleep, like books or magazines or something. And at another point, they had access to technology. And when people used technology before bed, they saw things like they tended to go to bed 30 minutes later. They tended to take longer to fall asleep. They felt more groggy in the morning, you know, just pretty compelling research that technology right before sleep can be disruptive to us. Mm. And I wonder, is there any kind of research around even what you're thinking about in relation to technology? Because so for instance, you know, I run a kind of an online business. So like I'm, I always feel very, you know, connected to my phone and to my laptop and, and whatnot. So often the last message I could send would be to a graphic designer or something before I go to bed. And even when I just woke up this morning at 6 a.m., the first message I checked, looked at my phone, was a message from a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to say is that maybe when you're sleeping, there's a link between like that kind of stress and the, the overplay of ideas. And then you wake up and you react, get your phone and you're back in that position. Absolutely. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say most people, but I think most people can relate to the idea when you're like sleeping on top of something, on top of a thought, basically something that was on your mind and you're sleeping. And even when you roll over in the night, it's kind of like right there. Mm -hmm. um, I do think technology can play a role in facilitating that process just because we can have access to it. As you said, right before we go to sleep, we can have access to it first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. I think more broadly, I mean, when we think about the impact of like the active mind or stress on sleep, we often think about when this, when we first developed this response. So when we're evolving as humans, maybe our first stressors are things like, I don't know, tigers or bears. Mm -hmm. And if there's a tiger or bear, you know, people talk about our stress response, the fight or flight response. Um, the piece people often don't talk about is you're not meant to sleep. You're not supposed to be able to sleep if there's like a tiger, right? And so now, although our stressors have changed, it might be the graphic designer, not the tiger. Um, our response can still be a little bit similar. It's the response we've evolved with, at, which is that um, it's on the forefront of our minds. Sometimes we notice some fight or flight response, and sometimes we notice the impact on our sleep. Mm, yeah, it's like our problems have changed. Of course, some of them become 
you know, not as important, of course, as a tiger, but I, I do completely understand it's a, it's a great analogy because you're kind of moving around. I wonder, is there anything around um, the proximity to technology or to distractions before you go to sleep? So when I first moved to Singapore, actually, I didn't actually have an extension lead, would you believe? So I had my phone in the kitchen and uh, it was charging in the kitchen at night. And then I was in my room, my own. Mm. And I remember just sleeping for longer. It was actually kind of strange. Like, so I don't know, was it a combination of just being tired or a particular time of my of my life? But I remember just actually, it could, it could be subconscious. It could be made up in my own brain. But it's the fact that because everything was out of the room, I just went mm. to bed fell asleep it seemed like to your point the quality and quantity was was uh, was improved because I didn't have these distractions near me that makes sense to me on like a very um yeah that just makes sense to me this idea that when our, when we the thing is right there we're much more likely to think about it to engage with it and that perhaps some physical distance and not even having the cue of the phone in the room protected you from that a little bit you know yeah um yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me, as well as the idea of uh, even if you can't sleep, it can be helpful to have kind of protected off-duty hours. So, you know, even if you're awake or you can't sleep or you're tossing and turning, the idea of like leaving the work things that they can wait for the day um, really helps protect your rest, you know? And so I could certainly imagine now having the phone out of the room is one way to implement that. There, there must have been, well, there must be a link between a lot of the lockdowns that have happened recently or people just moving fully at remote and just being working from home to poor sleep quality. Because if you spoke, speak about that light spectrum, less light, of course, but even when you're working from home, things are pretty much in your brain 24 uh, seven and they can be as much as you want to or, or, or you're trying to avoid as well. Absolutely. I think there's a few disadvantages. There's obviously many advantages, but a few disadvantages from a sleep perspective, being at home. I mean, one of them is just not having the barrier of the commute, you know, a a space between you and your work to come home and have these off-duty hours. The other is that, that like a conditioned piece, if we are working in the same space that we sleep in, whether that's in the bed or in the bedroom or in the studio apartment, um, there's some conditioning that takes place. And so our minds start to link this location with thinking perhaps, or, you know, some level of like cognitive arousal. Mm. Um, I feel like I should also say that one of the benefits for more night owl people is that working for home for many people has given them this flexibility to actually sleep on a schedule that's a better fit for them. And so for some people, there's actually been a relief in sleep difficulties during the pandemic and working from home makes sense because you're not squeezed for time exactly. like i i don't have an alarm and i never ever set an alarm because i can go to bed at like midnight 1am and i'll go sleep but it's so funny because i compare myself to, to to my girlfriend so she's very type b personality very relaxed very calm and it's interesting because she can sleep for like 10 11 hours so if i do not wake her in the morning she will literally sleep to like midday it's crazy right but then (laughs) yeah it's literally super but in contrast and no matter how sleep late i sleep i'll always wake up 7 30 maybe 8 a.m and i'll head to the gym um fasted 
train, come back, and I feel I feel perfectly fine. And this this is what's so interesting. But it's funny because people are like, "Oh, you don't have an alarm? Like you must sleep all the time." And I'm like, "No, <laughs> I still wake <laughs> up at that window between seven thirty and eight thirty. Yes. What's that about? <laughs> yeah. So that speaks to the circadian clock, the internal clock, right? So we have, I actually am biased, but I think this is fascinating. <laughs> Every organism that we've discovered on earth. So animals, plants, single cell nuclei have this internal clock that displays near 24 hour rhythms. So I think this is so cool. Like everything on our planet has this internal clock. Um, it was first discovered by a French astronomer in a plant that opened and closed at the same time. And we were like, oh, it's the sun. It's opening for the sun. But then we put it in like a lab basement and it kept doing it. I say we, but I definitely wasn't alive when this was discovered. Um, <laughs> so in humans, what does this mean? It means we have this internal clock that's regulating all kinds of things. It's telling us when to sleep, when to wake up, when to be hungry, uh, cortisol, melatonin, core body temperature goes up and down. And that's exactly why when we travel to a new place, it takes us a few days to get on the local schedule because our body is like, hey, it's day. Like, hey, it's mm -hmm. night. Um, so for you, it sounds like your internal clock is pretty strong. Uh, around the same time, it wakes you up nearly every day despite sleep duration. Um, and of course, there are pros and cons to that. The con is that there's probably times you wish you could sleep longer. Well, I'm not sure, but maybe it sounds like your girlfriend has that ability. Um, <laughs> a pro is that there's a really regulated, we think of it as like the conductor, like it's a quite a strong conductor. It's telling the body the different timing of the different systems. Um, and I feel like I should mention the timing of that clock is different for different people. So it sounds like you're a morning person, you know, you wake up between seven or eight, no matter what. Um, for some people, that timing would just be different. Like they will always wake up at six. They will always wake up at 10. So the timing of the clock is really different for different people um, relative to the sun. That's, that's right. It's cool because the range is so different for some people. Even mm -hmm. speaking to someone recently, you know, he's actually nearly 50, very healthy guy. He said he's in bed every night at nine, but he's up every day at five mm -hmm. naturally. He said he obviously has an alarm, but he said over the years it's built in. And I was like, five o'clock, you know, every single day. He's like, yeah, he's just used to it. And I think a good observation there is around animals as well. So I have like, you know, a couple of dogs, um, cats and whatnot. And it's, you said there about the sleep, which is one thing. Um, but what's interesting is around the diet and the food and, you know, how it all connects. Like, obviously, animals haven't a clue about the clock. But for some reason, at five o'clock, every single day, they come screaming. <laughs> yeah. And same in the morning. Now, of course, they're hungry, but there is literally, and I remember um, someone told this to me, and I was like, no way. But it was like literally 5 p.m. every single day. Yeah. They're, they're reacting the same way. And then similarly with sleep, they're asleep at a specific time throughout the day. Like, like actually, some dogs sleep for like 18 hours a day. If you think about it, as they get a bit older, they're yeah. barely awake half the time. Um. But I think that's fascinating because that's an example of someone who doesn't have exposure to technology, doesn't have all these life scenarios going on. They're just focused with the next meal and going to yeah. sleep. And they have that internal clock. Yeah. I mean, you made me think of animals that go in their dens at night, you know, like they just have a sense of being able to anticipate our environment is like a um, core survival piece, mm. you know? Um, you also made me think of the... Um, 
Oh, for the person you spoke with who goes to bed early and wakes up early, I think sometimes it's particularly hard for more night owl people because we have some messaging about, uh, there's like a social stigma around being a night person. You know, sometimes we say things like early bird gets the worm. Um, And we think maybe some of that stigma came from when we were largely living in like farming societies. Um, you know, we, the more we learn about it, the more we learn that it's largely biological, in a large part genetic, pretty stable across our lives. And most importantly, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with being someone who prefers to go to sleep a little later and sleep later. It can just get tricky if work or school starts early. If you're kind of like forced onto a schedule that's not a good fit for you, then you experience this social jet lag. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. That's a that's thing that's kind of deep rooted into more like social factors as well. You know, it's like, oh, you should be a bit in bed early because you have work at 8 a.m. Or, or whatnot. You know, I'd like to discuss around food to begin with. And I have multiple different areas around food. So how does poor quality food impact sleep? Oh, it's interesting you said it that way. I was thinking I was thinking the other way. How does sleep impact our food choices? Um, I'm Ooh. sure the relationship is is bidirectional. So if you've ever spent any time around the baby, (laughs) you know that they need to be satiated to sleep. So often babies, it's so obvious. They like need their nutrients and then they sleep and they won't go to sleep unless they have that. Um, If we look at the relationship the other way, the hormones that help food make you feel satiated are altered when you don't sleep well. So you, you're less likely to feel satiated and therefore you're less likely to make healthy food choices. So um, poor food choices can lead to poor sleep, but poor sleep can also lead to poor food choices. Um, yeah, and then I've also s- spoken with people who are working on their sleep and they just find that uh, it's very hard for them to meet their like health goals and food goals during the day when, as we spoke before, when they just feel that their bandwidth is compromised, you know, they only have so much self-control and maybe they're using it to show up to work on time. Yeah. That's a, that's a difficult cycle to break because I always think about, let's use like an airport example. You have a flight at 6am you wake up a tree, you're like discombobulated, you're all over the place. You get to the airport, airport food is shit. You literally go in and just like smash like a croissant or something. And then you're on a plane and you feel really groggy. You can't sleep. You're after eating like really poor quality food. And I think that's a heightened example. And I see that pattern continuously. And then in a, in a lifestyle sense, then like it's, it's interesting because people will squeeze out trying to get a bit more sleep and then they'll eat quite poorly. And I feel sometimes the best sleep I'll get is when I'm very on track in my diet. So like, like a lot of bodybuilding is very exact. It's very calorie based and whatnot. When I'm in a maintenance phase, so when I'm not pounding too much carbohydrates or not pounding too much um, calories overall, and I'm at a, a nice kind of range, um, that's when I sleep the best. Mm. So is there some kind of research around kind of calorie consumption and sleep around how that should be influenced? I'm not actually familiar. There probably is. I'm not familiar with calorie consumption and sleep. I do think what you're saying about when you're kind of on track with your health goals, you notice you get your best sleep makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and it's hard to know what amount of that to attribute to um, what you're consuming and what amount of that to contribute to 
to attribute to the fact that you're being really thoughtful about your health decisions, you know, and it's likely that, um, perhaps you're less likely to drink a lot, a lot of alcohol that evening. Right. And so therefore we do know that would have an impact on sleep or something like that. You know, you're dead right. Exactly. It's about those kind of like different kind of factors. I do see though that, so using this example again, when people are in like calorie deficits, so even like myself, um, it's, it's, if you think about it, it's all, it's all, it's always really bad in the body. But if you're doing like 12, 16 weeks of being in a, in a deficit, and this can be for <laughs> multiple reasons, it could be bodybuilding, it could be health reasons. It's literally the, the laws are bringing down weight and body fat, but it's towards the end that my sleep in particular would not necessarily get worse, but it'd be shortened. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that is. It could be because of stress. It could be because uh, my body doesn't get the nutrients that it needs. Um, Sometimes I'm not eating, eating as much micronutrients. I'm definitely not e- eating as much macronutrients, especially carbohydrates. And I will be quite exhausted, especially my fat as well. Mm. Fat being burned for energy um, could be as low as 50 grams a day, which is which is a lot lower than what my body at 175 pounds should be eating. Um, and then at, at those periods, I do see my sleep being hindered a lot. And actually, when I was competing in bodybuilding, it's a good couple of years ago now, barely seems like a distant memory. My coach, uh, his background was actually in, um, not biochemistry, but it was like biomedical science or so one of those. He was mentioning around how when you're in those areas of calorie deficit, in a a big calorie deficit and your stress is higher, that's when your actual sleep is going to be at its most deprived as well. Um, And I felt that towards Mm -hmm. the end quite a lot. It was a weird anecdotal example. That makes a lot of sense. You made me think of this isn't a recommendation for everyone. And this isn't something that I do. But I think it's an interesting um, finding to be aware of is that sometimes having like a carbohydrate before bed can help deepen our sleep. It's a little bit counterintuitive. Most of us aren't trying to have carbs before we go to bed, you know, for other reasons. But you're, what you're saying is like the opposite of that. So it actually does make a lot of sense to me that when you're in this calorie deficit, you've noticed an impact on your sleep. Mm. so so what do you think there about the food windows so as you mentioned towards the before you go to sleep i would have thought well i not that i would have thought i've heard previously like you don't want to eat too close to going to sleep especially like dairy cheese milk and whatnot um is there anything to be concerned about there with with, with food consumption this is such a dissatisfying answer but it really depends <laughs> um sometimes i work with people who notice that they're waking up a little bit hungry in the night and so actually having a snack that will help them cover the night makes a lot of sense. Um, the opposite as well, like for anyone experiencing maybe acid reflux, which we're more likely to have when we lay down. So some people say they lay in bed and then we really want to make more of a gap between when they finish their last bite and going to bed. And so it's that it's that very dissatisfying answer that it really depends person to person. Of course, it's a, it's a quantity and the quality of the food as well. You know, Absolutely. I kind of I would probably not have like a large meal like, as in like chicken or whatever you know like a like a meat-based dish but it could be just something kind of small uh it's something i've been cognizant of it's good to hear that there's no direct correlation unless it's a personal base you know right. you mentioned there i will actually mention there about cheese and dairy and dreaming so firstly i want to kind of discuss dreaming from like a perspective of, of what is it mm. um do you have much uh, background in like the concept of dreaming and and why we do it at all? A little bit. So from a like sleep architecture perspective, um, we dream during REM sleep. Um, for adults, REM is about 20% of the night. 
And when you're not in REM sleep, you're in non-REM sleep, which is stage one, two, and three sleep. Um, REM sleep is called REM because there's rapid eye movement that happens during it. So even though your eyes are shut, your eyes are actually moving around, which is kind of interesting. And then within REM, there's two different parts. There's tonic and phasic REM. And we dream during phasic REM. Um, Importantly, REM sleep tends to predominate the second half of the night. So if you wake up from a dream or a nightmare, it tends to be closer to the time you were going to wake up than the time you went to sleep. And there's all kinds of other factors that can impact um, remembering our dreams, how much we dream, things like medications, antidepressants, things like if our sleep is more fractured. So for many people during pregnancy or something like that, they remember more dreams, they notice more dreams. Um, Dreaming in general is um, is not bad. <laughs> I just mentioned that because sometimes people are like maybe worried about their dreams. However, if you notice that you're having you know ongoing nightmares and it's quite distressing to you, then that could be worth addressing. Um, sometimes I get asked what's the difference between like a stressful dream and a nightmare, and the difference is really if it wakes you up. So part of what makes a nightmare a nightmare is that we awaken from it and we can remember the content um, as opposed to, you know, sometime during the day while we're at work, we're like, oh, I had that dream last night. That was kind of stressful. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, for people, so I really would like to go down the area of that kind of trauma and depression. I know you've you spoke about it and you've wrote about some different elements of it. Um, for people that are struggling with kind of trauma and PTSD and they're getting those nightmares. Why does it play so much in their sleep? Yeah, the answer isn't totally clear, but something along the lines of you can think of it as like digestion for the brain that's not going that well, like stuck digestion. So the brain is like stuck on something, right? In the same way that if we ate something that really didn't agree with us, our digestive jack might get stuck on it. Um, so we think of it that way. We also think of it as, um, you know, nightmares can be, the brain is like repeating the same thing often over and over again, can be a reoccurring nightmare or reoccurring theme. And so it almost gets like this learned repetition that the brain has learned one way of firing this. Um, there are different kinds of treatments for both PTSD and nightmares that have been shown to be pretty effective at alleviating symptoms, including nightmares. So PTSD treatment targets the, the trauma itself and the symptoms surrounding the trauma. Nightmare treatment is effective for nightmares, even in the context of PTSD. So even if the nightmare is very directly linked to trauma, there are different kinds of nightmare treatments. So um, things specifically addressing the nightmare that can be um that can be really helpful even though we know there's like perhaps more symptoms the person might be experiencing related to the trauma mm. what would those be like what would be the steps you would take if you find yourself in those patterns mm -hmm. you mean for a nightmare treatment or a ptsd treatment um let's say ptsd so if it's happening on an occurrence basis and you're getting those really aggressive and repeatable dreams so if you were addressing the PTSD itself, there are different two different evidence-based therapies. One is called CPT, Cognitive Processing Therapy, and one is called PE, Prolonged Exposure. There are also some medications that can be helpful for the different symptoms a person might be experiencing, like if you are experiencing symptoms of depression, perhaps an antidepressant. 
Mm-hmm. Um, on the nightmare side, there are therapies specifically addressing nightmares. So one of the most common ones is called IRT, image rehearsal therapy, in which you are um, re-scripting the reoccurring nightmare and then teaching the brain to practice that re-scripted version. Um, there are also medications for nightmares, something like prazosin is uh, specifically to address nightmare symptoms. It's weird. It's like we're always built in habits, you know, on the positive side and on, on the negative side that if something happened to us, that's obviously very traumatic. We can see that building and continuously and coming back around. And it's it's just a kind of a fascinating concept because you see this in all aspects of, of someone's life. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I have to admit the first time I did IRT with someone, um, I wasn't sure like how this would work. And so it's actually really cool to see that um, through some work on nightmares, people can um, change their nighttime experiences. And for many people, that means um, they start dreaming their re- new rescripted dream. For many people, that means the old reoccurring nightmare um, just goes away. Or for many people, the nightmare might continue, but their distress associated with it uh, goes down quite a lot. And so it's a different relationship to this reoccurring nightmare once they've worked with it during the day. Mm, yeah, it's very interesting. How come some people don't have don't dream as much? So like, from for instance, I actually don't recall it. So the question here is that, do you dream regardless? Because some people don't actually remember it. Um, but even in contrast with my best mates, he dreams really vividly a lot of the time. Mm. And he actually would compare it a lot of time to psychedelics, that whenever he's taken psychedelics, that it's a similar kind of experience. Whereas for me, I like I could go months and I would never sit at work and think, you know about that dream last night? You know, it would never come back to me like that. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting. Yes. So um, whether to say you dream or not is hard to say, but we know that you likely have REM sleep, right? And so we know you're having REM sleep and there's there's probably rapid eye movement associated with it and brain activity associated with it. But if you don't remember it, who am I to say that there was a dream, you know? Um, But we can, um, remembering our dreams can become a little bit of a learned behavior. So it has been shown that if people make a strong effort to remember dreams and write down dreams and try to recall things related to dreams, they're more likely to remember them in the future. So from that perspective, it doesn't surprise me that your friend who's in the strong habit of remembering and recounting dreams has a different experience to you where it's just not really, you're unlikely to sit down at work and think about a dream that you had. Mm. Yeah, I think, I'm not too sure is this completely correct now, but I remember Andrew Huberman was saying around writing after you wake up in the morning. I don't know, did he mention the dream or was it just associated with what he was doing or something? But I've heard that from multiple sources that he lives by the habits that that he discusses and I think he's you know an amazing individual but I think it was him that mentioned that he wakes up and then he'll have a notepad and he'll write down everything that he recalls yes so I also am not 100% certain that it was him but I'm very familiar with what you're describing which is mm-hmm. um Many people talk about if you wake up and you make a practice of journaling or trying to remember any nighttime experience or dream, you're more likely to remember in the future. It's cool. There's a lot of um, nuances to it, of, of course, you know. So I want to talk about the big the big thing is, is caffeine. So mm-hmm. um, I'll give you a bit of a backstory. So I will be quite productive, but 
I pretty much charge for most of the day is how I would, how I would describe it. Combination of pre-workout, of course, in, in the gym in the morning, there's a bit of exposure to caffeine, uh, midday, and then in the afternoon. So multiple questions are in here, but let's go from the very beginning. So how does caffeine impact sleep? Yeah. So in, when we were speaking in the very beginning, I was talking about two biological processes that impact sleep, one of which was sleep drive. And what sleep drive is, is it's like our appetite for sleep. And so basically a chemical is building up in your brain called adenosine. And uh, it's that adenosine that we experience as the drive to sleep or a strong appetite for sleep. Caffeine sits on adenosine receptors and therefore masks um, the accumulation of adenosine. So it's not that it's not happening. It is. We're just not totally aware of it. Like it masks the impact. So I also really enjoy caffeine. (laughs) I have a coffee every morning. You know, we don't feel that like the goal is to get rid of caffeine. Um, Caffeine has a half-life of four to eight hours, depending on the person and the body. So we do think being very thoughtful about the timing of caffeine makes sense. So for many people, a useful guideline is to try eliminate caffeine, maybe let's say after lunch. So that way, when you do go to bed, you're not sleeping on top of like a counteractive process that's happening in your body, which is the masking of adenosine via caffeine. Mm. Yeah. Of course, it's situational based. Um, What about in terms of like immunity to it? Is there... Can people build up a tolerance that affects their sleep or doesn't affect their sleep? So, you know, you mentioned you might have one in the morning. I imagine if you had three, like I do, you would be, you know, charged all day. You'd be running around the place. Um, is there an element there whereby three for me could be the equivalent for one for you? Is there that aspect? Yeah. There's, there's kind of two components. One is that um, people do just have different sensitivities to caffeine. So you've probably met people who are like really impacted by caffeine. It stays in their system for a long time and people who are less so. So there's kind of that predisposition that like I might just be more impacted to by caffeine than you. And then there's the piece you're talking about kind of habitual use that um, by habitually having more or habitually having less, we kind of become accustomed. I would say that no matter, even if you're used to having a little bit more, it's still, um, it still does stay in the body. So you can't have so much um, for so long and then say, I'm probably not impacted by it anymore. It still would mask your experience of adenosine. It still would have that half-life of whatever it may be for you, four to eight hours. Um, so it still has an impact. Um, so it's really about, we always say, you know, I'm in favor of like strategic caffeine use. So, you know, it can be regular and then maybe keeping those extra, sometimes athletes like to use it right before, um, they're going to perform no matter what time of day it is. And that makes sense. Um, but being thoughtful about if that's happening every day, then it doesn't become so strategic. Then your ongoing sleep is you're sleeping on top of some caffeine in your system. Um, I would say for someone like you who often has it in the afternoon, if you notice that you're sleeping fine, then that's okay. You know, we always, I'm in favor of what works. Um, but if you notice that some nights, if you have more of a, an active mind, maybe you're going straight from work, then you're kind of setting yourself up to be in a little bit of a more vulnerable place because there's caffeine still in your system, perhaps. And paired with an active mind, sleep might be difficult that night. Mm-hmm. Is there... Um... A negative impact for using caffeine to pretty much like 
overcome like poor quality sleep. So when you first wake up in the morning, um, you know, you're feeling very, very groggy, you have a poor night's sleep, and then you know you're having a double espresso. Like, is there a link there between you know long term actual just mental performance mm. versus the short term gain you get for being able to work on the, the Google Doc you've been planning to work on? Yeah, so I think there's that illuminates kind of two main factors. So I guess firstly, I should say it's not harmful to have caffeine in the morning like that. Um, however, if the need for caffeine is due to ongoing insufficient sleep, then you will see the impact of that. Caffeine might be a Band-Aid to help you get through the morning, um, but it's not protecting you from some of the longer term impacts of insufficient or suboptimal sleep. So I would be thoughtful about, is it that I'm not getting enough sleep on a day-to-day basis? And that's why I'm needing the caffeine, in which case, you know, it helps me get through the morning, but it doesn't necessarily fix my longer term problem. Um, That might not be the case. A person might actually be getting sufficient sleep and still just feel a bit groggy in the morning. And we call that phenomenon uh, sleep inertia. So you know, it's like physics. Inertia is, you know, you're riding in the car, car stops and you keep going forward. Sleep mm-hmm. inertia is like whatever state the body's in, perhaps sleeping, the sleep stops and the like you just really want to stay sleeping. You feel groggy. It's hard to get going. Um, sleep inertia is more common in night owls. They're more likely to have that feeling in the morning. Um, it does dissipate. So it tends to dissipate within, you know, something like 20 minutes. And if caffeine helps you get up and going anyway and helps you get to work safely, um, then there's no problem there. So, and I think, you know, one other important thing to mention is that the presence of sleep inertia is actually separate from sleep durations. You might have gotten enough sleep and you still might experience sleep inertia, in which case you're trying to find ways that you can tolerate it and remind yourself that it's temporary. So caffeine could be a part of that system. Mm. You you raise a really interesting point there as well around when people first wake up. Um, so a lot some people, you know, they kind of hit the snooze button and they'll they'll let that kind of play for for many uh, for many minutes, and then there's another school of thought of people then who just get up out of bed and kind of go get for it. You know, there's kind of the Jocko Willink, Willink approach of you just kind of get up and it's in that moment you kind of make or break the day. Like, is there some science behind? that delay or the sudden get up and kind of get on that approach? There is a little bit of science. So um, one snooze is whatever, give or take. (laughs) But when Mm. we're talking about people who snooze for a while, sometimes we think um, if the day is not starting anyway, it would probably be better for their sleep to just let themselves sleep until the time they actually intend to rise. Like what's the point of puncturing the end of the sleep with snoozes? It's actually just a little bit disruptive to them. Um, most people are doing it because they would like to rise, but rising is difficult, you know, so they're snoozing because they kind of want to get up, but it's just hard. And then we can get in the habit of snoozing for like, like I've met people who are like, well, I want to actually get up at nine. So I, the alarm starts going off at eight. I'm like, oh, that sounds hard. (laughs) You know, that's a long time to be kind of fighting with yourself. Um, So maybe we say, would it be realistic to actually just have the alarm going off from 8.45 to 9? And until 8.45, really to let yourself sleep. Um, I also like to think creatively about other strategies to help a person rise. So, you know, if a person is snoozing because rising is difficult, sometimes I suggest things like having the clock across the room. You know, really just the act that you have to get upright helps dissipate that sleep inertia. 
There's an app I like. It's free. It's called Alarmy, like alarm with a Y on the end. And uh, it can it's, it does things like, you know, you can take a photo of something and then when the alarm goes off, it won't turn off until you show it that thing in the viewfinder. So you have to like get up and walk to the kitchen and like show it the poster <laughs> or whatever it is. You can make that sounds so photos. frustrating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, just don't break your phone. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Um, so it's a little bit like a Band-Aid rip. Like, you know, if you want to snooze a little bit is not a problem, but snoozing for a long time, you're not awake and your sleep is compromised. Um, so we try to think of ways of, uh, helping you rise, but I always like to say not necessarily launching into the day. So for some people, they're just not ready to face the day yet. It's okay to rise and get out of bed and have a cup of coffee on the sofa. It doesn't have to mean the same thing. Getting out of bed doesn't have to mean checking my email, you know? Mm. So just thinking about how can we help you rise in a way that feels less abrasive to you? You know, That's for some person that might be the toaster alarm, someone else that might be <laughs> by the window. <laughs> yeah, it's like some people need to get pushed or some people kind of have to jump up with stuff. My, my girlfriend's going to be laughing at this because like she's so like the opposite to me. Like everything you're describing there about like getting up slowly, like <laughs> don't talk to me until like I sit here for 35 minutes and like enjoy a coffee. Like, we both work from home, we can have online businesses so we can be f- super flexible. Yeah. Whereas for me, like because it's so hot in Singapore, I want to be out and in the gym before eight it's a long walk but it's actually a really enjoyable walk but it's so hot you know it's part yeah. of california um that for me like most of the day is taken in the morning does that make sense it's, a, it's like an yes. interesting dilemma but to your point it's like well who who cares at the end of the day if, if your day starts later you know ultimately because there is 24 hours and if you're going to bed at if, if it's everyone is different you know i think i'm even yes. learning that pretty well from you as well at this point that the creative strategies are great but once they're integrated into maybe your lifestyle decisions and, and overall what you need to do is more important. Yeah. And is your girlfriend a night owl, more of a night owl than you? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, like she's just kind of gets her things done during the day, but it's not like there's a massive rush to do things, mm-hmm. uh, which, which, it, and I don't know, it's, it's personality traits. It, it's, it's a type of person I am person type of person she is. It's, it's very different in that in that yes. aspect, you know. Um, yeah. Whereas for me, like previously, I would have lived with a lot of guys who are all like working in like finance and mm. all like data scientists, and they're all kind of like on a twenty four seven. It's like a, I don't know. It's like a, it's hard to explain. Mm. No, you're describing it well. I was asking because sometimes this isn't the case for everyone. Sometimes people who are more morning type. Um, are more likely to like jump up and go. And sometimes people who are more evening type, um, people who are able to stay awake a little later in the evening or sleep in a little later in the morning, like to ease into the day. Um, And there's a a little bit of a biological explanation, which is when we look at the circadian length, the towel on night owls is a little longer. So they might be more like, let's say 24.4 for their internal clock. And so it just means getting started, a slower start can be advantageous for them. Um, Yeah, no, but you're completely right that there's individual variation and there's a word for that chronotype and that there really is nothing wrong with the earlier schedule, the later schedule, something in between. Um, And that we, you know, always like to challenge this idea that like it's better to be a a morning type person because it's really not. Yeah, of course. It's, it's, it always goes back to individual base. I want to, uh, you said mentioned there were creative kind of, not necessarily hacks, but ways to kind of influence your sleep. Um, 
you wrote a very nice piece around napping as well, which I thought was quite interesting. So your example, correct me if I'm wrong here, but was around pregnant women and the influence of napping. And you did you did some very really creative things, which I really enjoyed. So one was around that, which I thought was quite interesting because of course, pregnant women, they're literally carrying two people and then they're going to be exhausted. So they may sleep during the day and that might have an impact uh, on their sleep long-term. Tell me if I'm wrong now in saying this, by the way. And then the other aspect around that was the socio-demographic factors. So looking at age, income, education, employment, these are things I pulled out, which is, which is a very fascinating uh, variable kind of way to, to examine it. So can you speak maybe around that kind of napping element and, and some of the research you did? Absolutely. Um, so I have this specific interest in sleep uh, combined with women's health. So that's where a lot of my research on sleep and pregnancy, sleep and menopause, sleep in women's cancers kind of comes from that interest area. Napping more broadly, you can think of coming back to this analogy of the sleep drive being our appetite for sleep. Napping is like snacking. So it's not that all snacking is bad, um, but that we want to be really thoughtful about the timing and duration of naps so that we can protect our nighttime sleep. And you're correct. Napping is extremely common in pregnancy. So um, specifically, you know, some people find that if they're struggling with their nighttime sleep, it's optimal to really try eliminate or minimize the daytime nap, that by having that snack, if you will, sleep snack during the day, their nighttime sleep becomes compromised. Um, for many people, the thoughtful timing becomes more about keeping the naps short. So an optimal nap is like 20 minutes and keeping it um, further away from our bedtime. So maybe at least six hours before bedtime. So if you go to bed at, let's say, 11 p.m., um, being sure not to nap after 5 p.m. And um, questions we sometimes get about this is like, well, how can I control how long I nap? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take me to fall asleep. I often recommend like maybe setting the alarm for 30 minutes or maybe 20 minutes and just resting your eyes. Close your eyes. Let yourself rest. We don't know if you won't sleep at all, if you'll sleep for zero minutes, 10 minutes or 20 minutes. But the alarm will go off and it will ensure that you don't oversleep. You'll still get some rest. Um, it's even beneficial to have more than one short nap than it is to take one of those longer ones for many people uh, for two reasons. One is the longer nap takes a bigger bite out of your sleep appetite for the night. But the second is from the longer nap, you're more likely to have that groggy feeling upon awakening. So some people tell me napping can like ruin their day. Like they wake up and they just feel awful, you know, yeah. <laughs> so keeping it shorter helps with that. That's funny. Yeah. Cause sometimes I, I never, ever nap. Um, but if I have a night out, so basically like I could be out to like four or five in the morning, come back, wake up at like 11. And this is so unlike me. Wake up like 11 and then like three o'clock I fall asleep. I'll wake up at five. I literally feel like I'm in a different universe. I, yeah. I could be genuinely in a different universse and then I won't go to sleep at all at night. Till yes. Like yeah. 12 or 12 or one. And then I'm into work the next day and I just feel terrible. Like literally yes. terrible. Um, I don't know. It's probably because I never do it. Like I probably do it like four times a year. Maybe I might nap. So it's it's a weird dilemma. Yes. Someone told me this phrase the other day and I liked it. It's the what year is it nap? Like you wake up and you're like, what year is it? You know, horrific. <laughs> Just really throws you off. Yeah. Horrific. Horrific. Um, you mentioned something quite interesting around kind of like resting your eyes. So 
funnily enough, when I was traveling when I was younger, myself and my best mate, he would sleep, he would nap all the time, like be able to clock in like 40 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. And I could never sleep. And he used to always say to me that, oh, like, you know, you're just resting anyway, so you're getting the equivalent of, of sleep. Like, what's the relationship there? Like, is there some sort of truth to that? Is there, you do get some sleep or do you get the equivalent of rest when you're just lying down and have your eyes closed? So I would say there is some validity to that. Um, Rest isn't the same as sleep, but it can help us like recharge in a sense. So I think, um, I think your friend actually gave good advice, not because it's the same as sleep, but because sometimes if we're trying to sleep, um, it's hard to sleep. So this is something that I use all the time that if I'm awake in the night and I want to sleep and I think I want to try to sleep, just remembering that you cannot make yourself sleep. You actually have to wait for sleepiness to come and find you, you know, so um, we can't chase sleep. We can't make ourselves sleep. Sometimes trying very hard to sleep actually increases anxiety and makes it difficult to sleep. And so I love this idea of actually just telling yourself, why don't I just rest? (laughs) You know, I can watch TV and rest. I can rest my eyelids. Um, so it can be very useful in that way. So it's not quite the same as sleep. It can be useful from like a homeostatic perspective, but most importantly, it helps avoid sleep effort and sleep effort is when like, we're trying really hard to sleep, which is counterproductive. I felt that a lot with an, with an alarm as well. When I have an alarm set for 20 minutes, I'm like, Oh my God, it's only 18 minutes left, 16 minutes left. Um, that was the only kind of caveat to using an alarm. I, I felt myself. Um, I would never nap for longer term anyway, but you know, sometimes I just felt like you're kind of on this literal alarm clock and it's just working against you. So it's kind of setting up an environment that isn't necessarily making you feel more anxious. Absolutely. Yes. So that's why we say this piece of like, you know, if you're, if you setting the alarm to ensure you don't oversleep, don't worry about sleep because it's very common to have this thought, like, do I have enough time? Uh, But actually just saying like, I'm going to take the next 30 minutes to rest. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm going to rest my eyelids and lay down. And we don't know if you'll sleep. You can't make yourself sleep. But at least then there's not this pressure to fall asleep because now you only have 11 minutes, you know? Yeah, yeah I get you. So the other area in there, well, not the other area, but the other factors that are involved were the sociodemographics. So can you maybe explain a small bit around how that kind of can influence, maybe not your sleep, but how it influences study at, at least? Yeah. So it's extremely um, multifaceted, as you can imagine. So there's a kind of how um, different factors can impact insomnia symptoms, which is different than how different sociodemographic factors can impact uh, sleep in general. So um, in terms of like things like discrimination can act as a stressor that can impact our sleep. Right. So like um, there's there's a component of like our experiences in the world can impact our sleep. There's also the component of, you know, back to the 24 hours, like if if we're working two jobs and taking care of a child at night, um, that can impact our sleep. And then there's this piece of just like neighborhood factors, like if the neighborhood um, is loud Uh, sometimes doesn't feel safe, that can impact our sleep. So the impact of our sleep of different social determinants is um, very, very vast. Mm. Um, There's a study I like to talk with some people about in the U.S. I'm not sure how relevant it is to your listeners, but something that's very interesting is the relationship between career success in America is inverse in sleep duration for white Americans and Black Americans. 
So as in, if you're a white American and you achieve more and more career success, your sleep duration goes up. You have the opportunity to rest. And if you're a black American and you achieve more and more career success, your sleep duration goes down. Um, Often more work is required of you to reach that level of achievement. And there's other factors, um, discrimination, other things that are impacting. So it's just this relationship, direct relationship between career success and sleep duration is inverse for white and black Americans. So that just illustrates kind of the greater context in which you and I are speaking, which is that we, we sleep in the context of our lives. You know, we don't sleep in a vacuum. It's, it's food, it's caffeine, it's our daytime experiences. It's our stress levels. Um, we actually see all of them in our sleep. Mm, that's fascinating because there's so much things going on beyond the regular kind of factors. You would think that as you get more career success, the other areas of employment. So one, like you're employed and you have a good position um, that would improve your sleep and then education and income as well as they move in parallel, you would think that that would help. But of course it's not because there's more, there's more things going on. It's extremely multifaceted, you know, it's crazy. Maybe let's uh, discuss a little bit around the insomnia. So what really is insomnia and how do you determine if someone suffers from it? Yeah, I love this question because I think sometimes insomnia is used, people use the term to mean like bad sleep, but insomnia is difficulty initiating or maintaining sleep um, at least three nights a week for at least three months. So, you know, some prolonged period of time, despite adequate opportunity to sleep. So that, that clause is important because insomnia is not difficulty staying asleep because the fire alarm goes off or difficulty staying asleep because the baby wakes up all the time. It's that there is this adequate opportunity to sleep, yet we are unable to initiate or maintain sleep. Mm. Is there a genetic element towards it? Certainly. So we kind of think of three main elements that impact insomnia. There's predisposition. So that is like we all just come in with a different level of predisposition to sleep difficulties. That could be a family history of insomnia, the genetic component. It also could be things like just being a lighter sleeper. You're more vulnerable, right? Things are more likely to wake you up. That gives your brain an opportunity to turn on and keep you awake. Um, people who identify as warriors, so they worry a lot. And they just notice that, you know, that they tend to take that role that could that could have a level of predisposition. So there's kind of just our our predisposition to insomnia, the level that we carry with us. Then we think of precipitating factors. These are like triggers, if you will. Most people have experienced some episode of sleep <clears throat> disruption in their lives that's triggered by something. It could be a breakup. Uh, It could be travel, it could be grieving, you know, something that just like disrupts our sleep, work stress, a new job, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the third one, which is our perpetuating factors. So these are the things that we do to try cope with sleep difficulties that actually make the problem worse. So this is things like maybe we're sleeping badly, so we just end up taking long naps during the day which, you know, as we discussed before, can actually make your nighttime sleep compromised. Or maybe we are struggling with our sleep. So we have lots of caffeine late into the evening, which as we talked about before, you know, then when we go to sleep at night, we have quite a high level of masked adenosine in our brains. 
Um, this could even be things like worrying a lot about our sleep. You know, people, if they've struggled with their sleep, they get really, really concerned about sleep, rightfully so. Um, and as you can imagine, that triggers that fight or flight response we talked about before. We're quite anxious and therefore sleep becomes difficult. So there's this category of things that kind of um, maintain the sleep difficulties, which are separate from the things that might have triggered it in the first place. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting because like, you know, the kind of worrying element, I would imagine that comes a lot with, uh, with newborn, so not newborn babies, but the mothers of newborns mm-hmm. and they're considering they're always worried and i'm even thinking of my mom in this example like she is someone who just always worries unnecessarily half the time and even as like her two children are growing up she will still worry and then be actually up at night as a result yeah. so that's a combination of maybe uh habitual or whatnot but as it's played on and continuously happening and then she might drop me a message at three o'clock in the morning saying yeah. that she, she can't go back to sleep you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and in postpartum, there's so many opportunities to worry because you might be awake a lot in the night anyway. You know, you mm-hmm. might be waking up to care for the baby or the child. And then so many opportunities for the brain to uh, to turn on and to start thinking, keep you awake. Yeah. Especially when there's like other factors then when you're thinking about maybe in the morning or, or work related and stuff like that, it's kind of like always playing together. It's a, it's a difficult scenario. I don't, uh, I, I, I didn't realize the extent to it until we, our kind of conversation, which is uh, pretty crazy. I want to talk towards the end on um, medication. Uh, and you, you mentioned melatonin at the beginning. Um, so melatonin tablets can be used for, for sleep as well. And I see a lot of people um, use them. So I've, I've used them previously and I've noticed that it's pretty much knocked me out sometimes. And being the kind of early riser, I usually can't do the stuff that I want to do in the morning. Mm-hmm. It really impacts me a lot. And I could I could wake up. I feel groggy. I feel I feel like I'm after taking a sleeping tablet. And we actually discussed about that as well, actually, if if, you, if we get the chance. But focusing first on melatonin is that I wake up, I feel like I'm not taking a sleeping tablet. I feel kind of really rough. And then if I'm in the gym or whatever, it takes me a while to kick into gears. But I do have a deep sleep, like extremely deep sleep, and usually quite vivid dreams. So what would you think about this in terms of context? Is it positive? Is it negative? Yeah, I'm going to do that thing again, where it really depends. (laughs) It really depends. Um, So some contexts in which melatonin can be helpful beyond the scope of sleep is sometimes melatonin is recommended uh, for someone who's completed chemo. So often oncologists will recommend melatonin. Um, Melatonin can also be helpful from a neuroprotective perspective. So for someone with Parkinson's or something like that, sometimes neurologists recommend melatonin. From a purely sleep perspective, people tend to use melatonin in two different ways. So one is kind of the way that you're describing, like people deep in sleep by taking melatonin kind of right before they go to bed. And the other is melatonin as a chronobiotic, which means melatonin to help pull sleepiness earlier into the evening. So sometimes night owls or people adjusting to jet lag will take melatonin to help them feel sleepy earlier. Um, Melatonin as a hypnotic, of course, so the, the one we talked about, how you've taken melatonin, melatonin to deepen sleep. Often people notice impacts similar to yours in that they feel really groggy in the morning, um, which makes them wonder if it was worth it. 
Um, Mm -hmm. Or some people don't notice very much impact at all. So for you, it sounds like there was quite a high impact. For some people, they notice maybe their hope is that it would help cover up insomnia symptoms or something like that, which um, melatonin is not a treatment for insomnia. And so sometimes people are disappointed if it doesn't. Um, There's more literature to support melatonin as a chronobiotic. So that's the melatonin to help someone feel sleepy earlier in the evening. And that tends to be a much smaller dose taken much earlier than people think. So melatonin as a chronobiotic is often 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams versus when people are taking melatonin more as like a hypnotic to sleep, they end up taking something more like five to 10 milligrams, like quite a bit more. Um, Melatonin as a chronobiotic, the one to feel sleepier earlier, we actually recommend taking something like six hours before you want to be sleepy. So if you want to be sleepy at 10 p.m., taking this little dose of melatonin much earlier, like 4 p.m., might actually help you feel sleepy closer to your target bedtime. Um, And melatonin in the body doesn't actually make us sleep. It's considered our dark pulse, meaning it's telling the body it's night. And so that is the use of melatonin to tell the body it's night. It's not always so productive as a long-term sleep aid, um, specifically for the reason you said. Uh, Sometimes it leads us to feel groggy in the morning. It kind of floods the system. Or sometimes it just isn't that effective for people. Mm. And in those scenarios, like even if people use it in the small doses, is is it potentially negative to use it over the long term? If you were to continuously use it, or is it? What's a, what's a kind of recommended dose for the long term? Yeah, when I'm working with someone like one-on-one, um, we often use it to help pull their schedule earlier. Let's say it's a night owl who has to wake up at an earlier time for work. And so we're trying to work backwards and help them feel sleepy at their target bedtime. And then we might try to taper the melatonin. And we might try anchor their schedule earlier using things like light regular scheduling. For some people, they are able to taper the melatonin and anchor that schedule. And for some people, they need to reintroduce the melatonin in order to maintain those earlier hours. Mm, yeah, because I kind of felt that sometimes if you were taking for so long, maybe you become dependent on it. It's kind of like caffeine in the, the flip side. Mm. And you'll find yourself always be kind of taking it as a result, um, kind of like as a crutch, you know, right. Right. No, I think you're right in that it can be harmful to your, I feel like I'm saying lots of words that start with sleep, but sleep efficacy, which is like Mm -hmm. your ability to know that your sleep system knows what to do. You know, like that, you know, you can feel sleepy around this time and rise around this time. And so um, it can compromise that sense a bit, feeling like you need this external thing in order to be able Mm -hmm. to sleep, which um, that is a little bit harmful to our sleep. Yeah. There's a a lot of kind of nuances, of course, when you're kind of taking it as a, as a supplement, you know, um, you mentioned previously around alcohol and alcohol is is technically a drug. Is there any other impact that kind of drugs can have on your sleep? So, you know, pretty much like there's a lot of talk about, Oh, like is marijuana positive for sleep? Does it have that benefit? But of course, like marijuana is a spectrum. Some people might get some benefits from it. Some people don't. Um, Is there anything around there that that you've observed or at least you've heard that can be positive or negative towards sleep? Sure. So for alcohol, often people find that alcohol can actually help them fall asleep. Mm -hmm. And then that as the body metabolizes it, they wake up later in the night. So 
bigger picture, alcohol can disrupt sleep in these nighttime awakenings. Um, so that's the impact we've seen from alcohol. The research on marijuana is not well established at this point, in part because, um, yeah, there's just not a ton of research uh, in the U.S. It's not regulated many times. There's some mm-hmm. evidence to show that actually higher doses can be helpful to sleep while lower doses can be harmful to sleep. Um, the approach that I take is actually just pretty pragmatic, which is that um, if we can't sleep without the marijuana, if someone feels like they can't sleep, then you want to help them improve their sleep so that they feel like they can. And if someone can sleep without marijuana, then it's probably optimal to sleep without it at least many nights, you know, so it doesn't Mm -hmm. become a regular maintenance strategy. Yeah. And I've also heard of people kind of using it for so long and then coming off it and then having the crazy dreams. So it, it like prevented them from dreaming or something like this. And then they were, when they went back to sleep, then they were just getting really, really aggressive dreams as a result. So it's almost as if it was suppressing it maybe. Yes. There are um, many kinds of substances that are known to suppress REM. And then there's a phenomenon that you're speaking to, which is REM rebound, which is that after REM has been suppressed, um, we sometimes have REM rebound, which is like, you know, really intense dreaming. You're also speaking a little bit to um, outside of physical dependence on a substance, there's psychological dependence, you know, like if we really feel like we need something, um, we can see effects as we taper that. So the psychological dependence of sleep, different sleep aids, um, whether they be regulated or not, can be quite strong. And we even see it in placebos. So there's research that people are given a placebo aid. So there's no real medication, right? And um, they're told that it's for sleep. And when they try to taper it, they experience sleep disruption. That just demonstrates how strong the psychological dependence can be. You feel like you have this thing that helps, and then you're having less of it. And that can lead you to feel quite worried, which could impact your sleep. Yeah, of course. And it may just kind of spark some ideas as well about how more extreme side of drugs as well could have an absolute disastrous long-term effects like the likes of cocaine, MDMA, um, the kind of ones that kind of fire neurons in your head continuously. Like I imagine even if people were using them recreationally, they could potentially have long-term effects for, you know, for good yeah. maybe. And like cocaine's a stimulant, you know, and so sleeping on top of stimulants is exactly what you think. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's like, this is just a metaphor, but it's like sleeping on top of like, you know, the bed is thorns. Like it's incredibly hard to get a restful sleep for your mind or body when there's stimulants in the system. Yeah. It's just, I suppose, I think the biggest take home from this as well is the fact that you have to look at your sleep in isolation above, you know, your performance of your work and your career and your lifestyle and kind of look at how to try to improve it. And I've, you know, I've definitely learned a lot of in this area. So I'd like to say a massive thank you, Natalie. I really appreciate Mm -hmm. it. Hopefully you enjoyed the session as well. And uh, I didn't blindside you with too many questions about crazy random stuff that comes into my brains every once in a while. No, not at all. I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for having me and for waking up quite early to um, bring our time zones closer together. Of course, of course. And lastly, where can people find your work and uh, contact you to get more details? Uh, absolutely. So um, if you Google me, I mostly publish under Natalie Leah Solomon. Um, mostly out of Stanford University School of Medicine. People are also welcome to reach me by email. Uh, my email is 
N Solo. So it's the first four letters of my last name. So N Solo at stanford.edu. Amazing. Amazing. And I'll put in all the kind of contact details of your, of your background and stuff like that as well in the show notes. It's kind of usually how I, I kind of approach things. So I'd say a massive thank you. I really appreciate it. 